You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Our mission remains the same. It's still about bringing people together. Our apps and their brands, they're not changing either. And we are still the company that designs technology around people. Facebook may have changed its name, but the Federal Trade Commission says it's still up to the same game, not designing its own technology, but buying up a smaller company with the technology it needs and eliminating any competition. Meta announced its deal to buy Within Unlimited, a virtual reality fitness app, just one day after Mark Zuckerberg announced its name change. The FTC is suing to stop the deal, saying Meta is trying to create a monopoly in virtual reality in the same way that Facebook bought up Instagram and WhatsApp to extend its dominance in social networking. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Jennifer Ree. Why is the FTC trying to stop Meta from buying within? What they're trying to do, I think, is not make the same mistake that they believe they made in the past when they cleared FTC's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp. They're looking at Meta as a company that's trying to sort of take over this burgeoning virtual reality space. And they see this acquisition as part of that. Within makes virtual reality apps. It has a very popular one for fitness called Supernatural. And what the FTC claims is that if Meta didn't buy within, they would be competing on their own because they have the resources and they have the wherewithal and the interest in developing their own fitness app that would compete. And it would be better for them to compete than to buy within and go forward in virtual reality fitness that way. So the allegations here is of potential competition, that if it didn't buy within, Meta would compete with them in the future, even though it doesn't today. Has that theory of potential competition been used frequently? It hasn't been used frequently. It has been used before. Most of the cases that the FTC is relying on here are from the 1970s because the more recent limited use in court hasn't been successful. I mean, one of the mergers that was challenged on this basis was between two companies called Steris and Synergy, and the FTC failed to succeed in that challenge in court because it's very, very difficult to prove. You know, you have to show that the company actually had a serious interest in entering that market and was well on its way to do so and probably would have been able to do so and been successful. So Meta has bought more than 100 
smaller companies, including nine virtual reality app studios over the last three years. This is the first time the FTC has challenged a deal before it takes place. Why now? Is it the timing when the FTC is on this aggressive path, or is it the deal in particular? You know, I think it's a combination of things. It's certainly the timing, but also some of those past acquisitions may have been too small to have to be filed under the Hart Scott Rodino Act, and they just may have fallen under the radar, you know, not been noticed, gone ahead and closed without the FTC having a chance to take a look at them. But the FTC in particular, as I said, I think regrets some of the past acquisition activity of big tech platforms in general, and particularly Meta, that have allowed them to kind of take over full spaces. And they see that Meta has this goal to move forward and to try to become dominant in virtual reality. And what they're trying to do is just nip it in the bud. And they see this as one step toward that goal. You know, Meta already has, through its acquisition of Oculus, the hardware that people use for virtual reality gaming and virtual reality apps. And it has a content store where it's creating some of its own virtual reality apps. And now it's trying to buy up more content. So the FTC views this as just one more step toward Meta taking over that space, kind of becoming the Apple of that space. You know, these are all the allegations with Apple and its app store and how it controls access to apps on iOS mobile devices. And I think what they're doing here is trying to prevent Meta from getting to that place. What is Meta's defense here? What is its response Well, first of all, that it doesn't compete with this company and that it's a very small company. And buying, you know, a small virtual reality app company in this very burgeoning, new, nascent industry, you know, nobody really knows what's going to happen with it. It's really at its very beginning stages that this is a very small app and it's a small fitness app and really can't have an impact on competition. I mean, a merger has to have an anti-competitive impact on competition to violate the antitrust laws. And so Meta would say, well, this just doesn't. And secondly, it would say, look, we did didn't have plans to develop our own fitness app. Even if we talked about it or thought about it, you know, we talk about and think about a lot of things and then we end up nixing those plans. And we didn't have any plan to go forward with this. So we wouldn't have been a potential competitor and we aren't buying this company so that we can buy up a potential competitor. Meta seems to have this growth by acquisition strategy. Is there anything wrong with that from an antitrust point of view? Well, there are two ways that there could be something wrong with that. The first way is if if you have your own product and you see this new up-and-coming nascent competitor and you have concerns about that company, you think it actually could really get big and threaten your position with the product that you already have in the market. I mean, this is what the allegations are today with respect to why Facebook bought Instagram. So instead of trying to compete, hey, let's do better, let's lower our prices, let's innovate more so consumers stick with our product even if we face competition from this nascent entity, let's buy it instead, because buying it will just vanquish that threat. So that can be anti-competitive. Then the second way could be the way the FTC believes that Meta is harming competition with the within acquisition. They don't compete today. And Meta doesn't necessarily view within as a nascent competitor that threatens it down the road. But the concept is that Meta would have entered this market and competed if it didn't buy the entity. And it's better to have two competitors than one. What will the judge be looking at here? I think the judge will be looking at a couple things. The first thing is if the FTC has defined what we call the relevant antitrust market correctly. So what the FTC has said is that a virtual reality fitness app, dedicated fitness app, sit in their own relevant market, that they don't compete 
against anything else other than other virtual reality fitness apps. So they don't compete, let's say, with other in-home fitness potentials out there like Peloton or Apple Fitness, you know, or any other kind of at-home guided fitness experience that a consumer can have. So they've defined this narrow market and the judge will be asking, well, should that market really be broader? Do consumers actually view, let's say, Peloton as a substitute for this virtual reality fitness? Do they price constrain against each other? Is one constraining against the other? Do they compete? So that's one issue. And I think the second issue is this whole concept of whether Meta actually would have been a potential competitor. They'll look at what Meta's plans say. Had the company devoted capital toward developing its own virtual reality fitness app? You know, were there approved plans to go forward with something like that that then got nixed when the company decided to buy within instead? I mean, the proof of that will be in their documents and what their documents say. And the judge is going to have to look at that as well. And you think it's an uphill battle for the FTC? I think it's difficult because I think it's very speculative. Again, if the documents show that there were no plans to develop a virtual reality fitness app, or there might have been plans that were nixed, but nixed not because of the purchase of within, but for other reasons, you know, that kind of neutralizes this argument that they would have been a potential competitor. And I think that it's really hard to say, hey, this company was going to enter, and you know what? If they had, they would have been a vibrant competitor to Within's very popular fitness app. I think that's difficult to prove in court. And I also think there could be some problems with the defined relevant market here, um, limiting it to just these virtual reality fitness apps. Is this a test case for the FTC for its more aggressive strategy on mergers, especially by the Silicon Valley giants? I think it can be thought of that way, absolutely. Not just a test case to try to expand the boundaries of antitrust law and try to push some of these novel theories and have some success in court with novel theories that might open the way, open the road in the future to more easily challenge other deals. And I think it's also part of trying to prevent big tech platforms from continually growing through acquisition. You know, there's nothing wrong with growing organically, but just trying to prevent this growth that's happened over the last 10 years through acquisition. So it's sort of twofold. Meta has said that if the judge rules against them, it will abandon the deal. If the judge rules against the FTC, might it take an appeal? Absolutely, it could. So what happens there is if the judge rules against the FTC, technically the companies are free to go ahead and close their deal and integrate. What the FTC would do if they chose to appeal is they'd likely seek an emergency order from the court to prevent the companies from closing just pending that appeal. And sometimes they win those. More recently in the last couple of years, they haven't been winning those orders. And then it makes it more difficult for them to go through with the appeal because the companies at that point would probably go ahead and close and integrate. And now it's more difficult, even if they won in court, to get a judge to require the companies to unwind the deal. Is the FTC still trying to unwind the Instagram and WhatsApp purchases? Yes, there's still that litigation is still ongoing. I believe it is set to go to trial next year. Either unwind or get some other kind of injunctive remedy like required interoperability or something like that that's short of unwinding the deals but does require Facebook to allow for you know better interoperability with other rivals and allowing users to migrate their history and their content to other platforms. So the FTC is very busy with Silicon Valley (laughs) platforms, (laughs) the commission has voted to block Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision, which is, I was surprised at this, one of the 30 biggest acquisitions of all time. What's the reason there? 
So that's a little bit different than the challenge to meta and within. This deal is called a vertical theory deal. So what they're objecting to here is the vertical integration between Microsoft and Activision. So in other words, Microsoft has consoles and PCs on which people can play mobile games and Activision creates that mobile content. So they're at different levels of distribution for an entire industry of mobile game playing. And what the FTC is saying is, look, once Microsoft controls this Activision content, it's going to have an increased incentive and the ability to withhold or degrade that content in ways that lessen competition. In other words, that hurt its competitors, primarily its competitors in consoles, which is really mostly just Sony. Sony, which is a competitor for Mm -hmm. Microsoft, is objecting because it's concerned that Microsoft could make games like Call of Duty exclusive. And apparently Microsoft has something of a history here. Well, you know, yes and no. I'll, I'll start by saying it has actually been fairly typical for console companies to have exclusive games. Sony itself, which has the PlayStation console, has games that are exclusive to PlayStation. It does that, and Microsoft has some exclusive games as well. So Microsoft, a couple years ago, acquired ZeniMax. And when they did, they were cleared by the European Commission, which took a look at the deal. And the European Commission cleared it without any commitments. So Microsoft didn't make any commitments to the commission that it would not make certain games exclusive. Now, we did tell the commission, we don't have an incentive to take these games as exclusive, but it later did do so. And this is what the FTC has mentioned in its complaint, saying that, well, even if Microsoft says, we have no incentive to go exclusive with these games, hey, that's what it said to the European Commission when it acquired Zenimax, but it went ahead and did that. But the European Commission is actually saying, you know, it's not exactly right. You know, we cleared it because we actually just didn't think the deal was problematic. And even if they took the games exclusive, we didn't think that was problematic or could harm competition. So it really wasn't an issue, and we weren't telling them you shouldn't or can't take these games exclusive. And it only took some of the ZeniMax games exclusive, not all of them. So, you know, it's maybe slightly disingenuous to rely on that conduct and compare that conduct to what might happen here, particularly because Microsoft has been very open about the fact that it's willing to extend a 10-year license to Sony for the Call of Duty games. Now, I think it might have to do a little bit better than that. It might have to include other Activision games within that license and not just Call of Duty, but it's been fairly open about willing to enter into a legally binding contract, you know, a license to, you know, not foreclose. Sony and to provide Call of Duty to Sony for PlayStation players to go ahead and play. So I think that, again, this deal might be a little bit difficult also in court for the FTC because, you know, you have that promise out there by Microsoft, which is more than just work. You know, it would be legally binding if it entered a license. Clarify, what is Microsoft's defense? Well, I mean, it is saying that it doesn't have the incentive or the ability to take these games exclusive. And and the reasoning behind this, the theory, let's say, behind this that the FTC would have to prove in court is that Microsoft would take these games exclusive or particularly Call of Duty. And by doing so, it, it would not get the licensing fees, the license that would have been paid to it you know, the revenue it would have achieved from licensing fees from other companies because it's now taken the game exclusive. But that ultimately, it'll be more profitable for Microsoft to forego those fees because down the road, it would drive more consumers to its console, its Xbox over the PlayStation. And it would recoup revenues by selling the Xbox to consumers. And Microsoft saying, no, that's just not really the case. That the math doesn't work out that way for us. It's actually more profitable for us to make these games widely available 
available to collect these licensing fees and to continue to sell our console, which I believe they sell at a very low margin. So the proof is going to be in the math. I mean, there will be complicated analytics that are presented to the judge by economic experts on both sides, showing whether or not a strategy like that would be profitable to Microsoft down the road or wouldn't. And that's really very difficult to show, June. Um, This is very similar to what the Department of Justice tried to do when it sued to block AT&T from acquiring Time Warner. Very similar concept and, and similar analytics. And, you know, you had to go in there and prove that this kind of strategy would be profitable for the company, and it just didn't work. You know, the model that The Economist presented had a lot of problems with it, had a lot of weaknesses in it that the judge pointed out, and he had some issues with it, and he just simply didn't feel that they proved that it would have been profitable for the companies to engage in that kind of strategy. And so there could be the same kind of challenge here. And Microsoft, of course, will have their own expert showing how it's not profitable and wouldn't make sense for Microsoft to take these games exclusive. This is an in-house trial with an administrative law judge. Oftentimes, defendants say that in those cases, the in-house law judge, the administrative law judge, favors the agency. So I have a couple theories about this. I think, first of all, there has been a pattern, if you look at the last 10, 15 years, of the FTC winning those few, we call it a part three, when you go through these proceedings internally, very few actually go through to the finish. But for the few that have gone through the finish, we have seen that the FTC is a good track record. But I tend to think that that could be because at least in the past, until this administration, the FTC would bring cases that were easier to win. They had better evidence on their side. They had stronger, more traditional antitrust theories. So it was more likely they were going to win. This judge, in fact, has recently ruled that against the FTC in two recent Part 3 proceedings. One was the merger of Illumina and Grail, that challenge, and the other one was a challenge to Altria's investment in Juul. These were both in the last couple years, same administrative law judge that would oversee this hearing, and he ruled against the FTC. I tend to believe he actually is quite independent and doesn't really essentially favor the FTC going in. Now, I'm a little confused about the timing because the trial Mm -hmm. is set for August 2nd, 2023, but the deal is set to close by June 30th, 2023. That's a problem for the company. (laughs) Yeah. So the timing is very complicated here because right now the companies cannot close because there are antitrust investigations that are still outstanding in the UK and in Europe before the European Commission. And those reviews keep the companies from being able to close their deal. Now, both of those right now have decision dates in in the first quarter, one of them in March and one of them in April. If they clear, if both the UK and Europe clear Microsoft and Activision to close their deal, technically they can, even though this Part 3 procedure is pending. So what will have to happen is the FTC in communication with Europe and with the UK, will know if that's coming, and they'll have to actually sue the companies for a preliminary injunction in federal court in the United States to get a temporary block, not permanent, but just a temporary block on the closing pending their Part 3. Otherwise, even though the Part 3 is ongoing, the companies would still be able to close. So I think that that's what they will do if those approvals are forthcoming. So we might see a filing in federal court sometime in February or maybe in March by the FTC. And that process will finish up 
if it happens, more quickly than the Part 3. Now, if there aren't approvals in the UK and Europe, and Microsoft has to fight those as well, they're either going to have to abandon the deal or the companies are going to have to agree to extend that end date. What's FTC Chair Lena Khan's record so far? Yeah, you know, it's a little bit mixed. Yeah, she she was really kind of hobbled for quite a long time when she first took on the chairpersonship because it was a split FTC. There were two Republican commissioners and two Democratic commissioners. One of them was Lena Khan. You know, there was some trouble because there were some split votes two to two. And when the commission ties, they can't take action. It would mean no lawsuit against the deal. And, and that kind of stopped her for a while. But once the final commissioner was appointed and confirmed, that was Alvaro Bedoya, she's been able to do a little bit more. And I say it's mixed because she's been able to get some abandonments of deals, with, which the FTC would look at as a success when they sue. And instead of having to go through litigation and win in court, the companies choose you know, just to walk away. So they did manage that with Lockheed Aerojet, and they also managed that with NVIDIA Arm. And there were uh, several hospital deals, three of them, in fact, in 2022, that all abandoned their deal. And, and those are successes, even though it's not necessarily a court success. But there were the two losses in their own internal court I just mentioned, the Illumina Grail and the Altria Jewel losses. So those weren't great. And now we'll see what happens. You've got two outstanding right now with Microsoft Activision and with Meta Within. And it's unclear whether Microsoft Activision will get all the way to a court decision, but clearly Meta Within will. We expect a decision in that one in December. So we'll see what happens there because that'll show us the beginning of her record and actually in federal court. Thanks so much, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. A New York law temporarily lifts the statute of... You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Limitations on civil sexual abuse and harassment claims and is expected to lead to a flood of lawsuits. In fact, lawsuits have already been filed against former President Donald Trump comedian Bill Cosby and billionaire Leon Black over allegations they assaulted women decades ago, which their lawyers deny. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Eric, tell us more about this law. So the law is called the New York Adult Survivors Act. It was signed into law in May and it took effect last month on Thanksgiving Day. And what it does is it lifts temporarily for one year lift the statute of limitations on civil claims over sexual offenses like sexual abuse and harassment. So it's a, a fairly new type of law. It just took effect. Uh, so what we're expecting is, is quite a few lawsuits to be filed in the next year. 
Was this in response to the Me Too movement? It was definitely related to that. In 2019, uh, the New York State Legislature actually uh, changed the statute of limitations for sexual offenses from one year to 20 years. So really acknowledging that, uh, you know, there's a, a unique circumstances here where victims, they're not necessarily able to process what has happened and seek the help that they need that quickly just because of the nature of the offense. And so this change acknowledged that, gave victims 20 years statute of limitations to file claims, but it wasn't retroactive. So if you look back at the decades of alleged abuse out there, uh, there was still no way to sue um, over that conduct. So what they did was pass this law to sort of fill in that gap and say, okay, you've got a year to uh, file these civil claims now. And it also should be noted that a similar law was passed for child victims of abuse, that that window already had passed. That law was passed earlier and it was seen as very successful. So now this new law is to allow adults, and I should mention that it's victims who were adults at the time that they were abused. That's what this law is geared toward, and that's what has just taken effect. Are there any challenges expected to this law? You can expect there will definitely be challenges to these lawsuits, and they're going to be uh, very strongly defended. You know, I've spoke with lawyers on both sides here. I spoke with plaintiff lawyers who are out there looking for clients uh, or who have already filed these lawsuits, and I spoke with lawyers who are representing companies um, that are looking into this, who expect that they might be sued or have been sued already. And so there are plenty of defenses that uh, are going to be deployed here very strongly. But when it came to the law actually being debated, there wasn't quite the outpouring of lobbying against the law publicly. You know, I spoke with some people involved in the passage of the law. And they really couldn't say who is publicly coming out against it. When that Child Victims Act passed, by comparison, there were groups coming out publicly against it related to the Catholic Church and Boy Scouts of America and organizations that were worried about getting hit with lots of lawsuits. They lobbied against it, but there wasn't that same lobbying against this law publicly. But what you can expect to see is that these individual lawsuits will be challenged in court and also out of court before they're filed. I think there will be a lot of settlements that are reached that we never hear about. What big names have already been sued? Well, former President Donald Trump was one of the first people to be sued under this law. E. Jean Carroll, the New York uh, writer who had previously accused uh, Trump of raping her over two decades ago, and then in 2019 sued him for defamation when he denied it and said she was lying. She went ahead and filed a claim the first day this law took effect. She sued uh, Trump for battery. You know, five uh, women have come forward and sued uh, Bill Cosby last week. You know, victims who had already accused him of wrongdoing previously, but now sued under this law now that it has taken effect. Billina Leon Black, he was also sued over allegedly assaulting women decades ago. All of these men have denied these allegations and their lawyers said that they plan to fight these cases. So clearly there's already some high profile lawsuits being filed. Can a plaintiff sue a company to hold them accountable for alleged abuse, even if the alleged abuser is deceased? Yes, in fact, that has already happened in the case of uh, Atlantic Records, part of Warner Music Group. Warner Music is being sued because uh, the Atlantic Records founder 
allegedly decades ago, more than 40 years ago, sexually abused women. So now the company, uh, you know, saying that they're looking into these allegations, interviewing people who may have been around back then, saying that many of the individuals who would have been witnesses are deceased or in their 80s or 90s. So clearly that this case uh, against Warner Music Group is a good illustration of how difficult it might be for some of these defendants to defend themselves. Notably, the suit against Bill Cosby, you know, it also named NBC Universal Media as a defendant because it aired the Cosby show in a different world, you know, two shows that Cosby starred in that allegedly uh, he used these shows and his popularity around these shows to lure women onto the sets and the shows in his circle and then abuse them, you know, allegedly drugging and raping them in some cases. So NBC Universal is accused of essentially turning a blind eye to Cosby's conduct for years. A similar claim made against the Warner Music Group. Of course, both companies are expected to fight those very strongly in court. This law, you know, the, the effect seems like fundamental unfairness to the companies. How do you defend against a suit when the person accused is dead? I mean, you're, you're definitely going to hear arguments like this in court, and I'm personally very curious to see how these arguments are made, because it is a very unusual set of circumstances here. This is a pretty unique law, so any companies even now can be accused of turning a blind eye to conduct and sued for negligence. So the simple fact is that this law has erased the statute of limitations. So even if you know the allegations are very old, anyone can, can bring these claims in court, but that doesn't mean that they're automatically going to win. Right. So if you have a victim coming in and and their only evidence is essentially their testimony and their statement of what happened, it may seem like it's unfair to the company that has been sued. But it it also may make it fairly easy for that company to win the case and just say, I'm sorry, but you don't have any evidence here. But I think what we'll see is a lot of these cases do have some additional evidence where you might have witnesses who the victim confided in at the time who could testify about what they were told at the time, could have documents, um, internal corporate documents or employment records that place uh, the plaintiff and the accused abuser in the same place at the same time. And you may also be able to show a pattern of conduct by interviewing other victims. So there's a lot of different ways that the plaintiffs are going to make their case here. But as you say, that some of these claims are going to be very old and it doesn't automatically mean a jury is going to accept them. As you said, you talked to a lot of lawyers and one told you that plaintiff's lawyer's best chance is before they even file the suit? That's right. That's why a few of the lawyers I spoke to said that what we end up seeing in court, actual lawsuits that are filed, are really just going to be the tip of the iceberg, and that a lot of these claims are and are going to be resolved before anything becomes public. And that, these, as these plaintiff's lawyers know, you know, some of these claims may be so serious that a company will simply want to settle them just to keep them from becoming public, that they can use that as part of their settlement strategy. So I'm not sure if that increases the amount of money that they get paid or whatnot. I'm sure that every settlement is going to be handled a little bit differently, but clearly the reputational damage is potentially significant for some of these employers, as you can imagine. Are there any estimates of how many lawsuits might be filed? You know, nobody really knows for sure. And because so many of those claims could uh, be out of court, 
that we might not hear about. But one lawyer at least pointed to the uh, Child Victims Act that I mentioned earlier and said that in their estimation, there had been tens of thousands of lawsuits resulting in hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements and damages awards. So you could easily see something like that happening here. I mean, as we know, this conduct is real. You can't say in specific case whether it's real or not because we haven't seen them all yet. But we do know that this conduct did occur and, and we do know, I think it's pretty well established that a lot of employers and industries did turn a blind eye to to conduct for a long time, which is exactly why the Me Too movement was such a watershed moment. So it, it is more likely now, as some of these lawyers said, that juries are going to take these claims more seriously just because people seem to be looking at these allegations in a different way now. So that's another potential uh, benefit here for plaintiff's lawyers. And I should also point out that, yes, they're lawyers and, and they do stand to make quite a bit of money from these claims. But they also, some of these lawyers, they've been working on these types of cases for years since long before this law was around. So this is also something that a lot, some of these lawyers really deeply believe in and have a sense of justice around. So that's another element to it, too. There's a very human element to this, and it, it isn't just all about the money. You spoke to a former prosecutor who said that Wall Street employers are especially at risk. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I wasn't too surprised to hear that uh, because as all the lawyers point out, and as you noted, there is a lot of money involved here. And not all of these claims are going to be taken on by plaintiff's lawyers simply because there may not be a, a big enough financial payout at the end to, to make it worth anyone's time and energy. So when you're looking at companies with the deep pockets that are based in New York, you know, financial institutions just do, do come to mind. And, uh, you know, we know from past litigation and testimonials that this you know, kind of conduct was rampant in the industry for a long time. And we're talking about something that might have happened to a woman in, you know, the 80s or early 90s, something that, you know, in, by all effects, sort of ancient history. But they, they now have a chance to bring it up here in a lawsuit. And they might. And they might see it as a way to get some financial compensation to make up for whatever it was that allegedly happened. So the word deep pockets did come up a lot in these interviews. And I think that they do expect to see lawsuits against Wall Street banks. Speaking of deep pockets, I understand suits have already been filed against the New York prison system. Yeah, you know, that was a really interesting element to this whole issue here when I, I spoke with a lawyer who noted that she had already re- received hundreds of inquiries from clients that, you know, that she, and she was taking their cases and, and had already filed 10 suits by the time I talked to her, but said that she already, she had hundreds more coming. And the reason that the New York prison system or, or any prison system is so unique, of course, is you have, for example, you know, these women's prisons where, according to this lawyer, there's been a long history of sexual abuse and rape in the prison system involving the correctional officers and other, you know, employees at the prison who have this complete control over the female population. So according to this lawyer, um, when a similar law like this passed in California recently, it didn't totally lift the statute of limitations. It, it only went back to 2009 temporarily. But even in that case, she said that she had filed hundreds, you know, there were hundreds of claimants for involving the prison system. And so she's expecting that here in New York. And, you know, she told me some of the stories and they were, they were pretty awful, some of them and some of the alleged conduct that occurred. So I think that's something that we'll probably see some big lawsuits and some big potential 
damage awards, maybe a trial cannot have done. And you mentioned E. Jean Carroll. Her case has been going on, it seems like, forever. So now she's sued under this law. But tell us what's happening with the rest of her case. I mean, part of it is now in D.C.? Yeah, that's right. This law really, you know, I guess the simple way of looking at it is, is this. If she loses her defamation case, for whatever reason, if it gets dismissed, she will still have this case now to go forward on because her, her new lawsuit alleges battery. So the specific facts are around the alleged rape, whereas the earlier case that we've been talking about for so long is a defamation suit related to those that same alleged rape. So, you know, right now, next month in the D.C. Court of Appeals is going to hear arguments. The D.C. local court, the highest appeals court, is going to determine whether or not Donald Trump's alleged defamation, uh, the words that he said about Eugene Carroll back in 2019, qualified as an employment duty, essentially. It's come down to a matter of D.C. employment law. So if Eugene Carroll prevails and proves that his comments about her did not qualify as an official duty, then uh, the case will get kicked back to federal court in New York, where it's been for a while, and it will go to trial in April. And despite this litigation over the litigation, Donald Trump did give a deposition in that case? He did. He did sit for a deposition and, according to his lawyer, answered all the questions that were asked of him. As she put it, he set the record straight. You know, a lot of uh, people were deposed in that case, uh, including Eugene Carroll. And so uh, we don't know what exactly was asked or said in those, but that potentially some of those details could come out at trial. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Eric Larson, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.